Thank you. Um, good morning. Last time I was here, I couldn't speak because of my laryngitis. We'll see how long I go this morning since all of a sudden I've been hit with a wave of nausea. And uh, not sure in life, you know, you wonder. I never blame stuff on the, on the enemy, although I know he does stuff. But because um, you never know, you know, I mean, we're, how things are happening. But I did have some oral surgery earlier this week, and I'm taking some antibiotics, which sometimes can have an effect on you. So, be that as it may, I will try and observe the first rule that I try to teach young men who aspire to preach or teach the Word of God, one of the most important rules that you can learn. Some of you young men already know it. And that's when the plane is out of gas, don't keep circling the airport, <clears throat> go ahead and land. So when the plane's out of gas this morning or this afternoon, I will promptly attempt to land. If you see me rather hurriedly get up from the desk and run, you'll need no further explanation and Aaron will close in prayer. <laughs> Thank you. So with that said, let's turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. It's a good day for it because there's a lot of other stuff going on after this, so not for Ephesians, but I mean, you know, for the type of meeting we have this morning. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, and again, I know this is sort of the culmination of things that you've been going over in regard to the New Testament church, New Testament church principles, and New Testament church practices seeking to draw from the scripture those things that govern us and what we do collectively as a local church under the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so this is a, a sort of a, I don't know if it's a final message on it, but at least a culmination of that series of things you've been going over. There are a couple of words that are important, even though they're very small words, you'll know that one in the book of Ephesians, an important word is the word in, preposition. Um, there's another word that you'll find a number of times in chapter 1, for instance in verse 12, that says to. And um, another word that you'll find in verse 4, verse 12, and verse 10, the word that, T-H-A-T. Particularly the word that is a word that indicates purpose. Purpose. The purpose is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love and so on. And one of the amazing things about Ephesians is how it sort of backtracks and it takes you back to the eternal past, brings you forward to the present, and then looks beyond that to the future. And it gives us insight into the very purpose of God. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 reach their climax with what it is that God has done through Christ 
And you'll find that in each of those chapters, there is the mention of the church. And so that the culmination that you have in chapter 1 is that in verse 22, he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so you were taken back to the eternal past before the foundation of the world in verse 4, brought forward through the work of Christ, culminating in all things under his feet, him occupying the position as head over the church. And then in chapter 2, it, it gets a bit more personal, if you will. And it speaks of what we were in time past. Walking according to the course of this world, children of disobedience, children of wrath, and so on. God in his grace having saved us, and it culminates and reaches its climax at the end of chapter 2 with a building that is fitly framed together, it grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And then finally in chapter 3, the revelation of the mystery that wasn't known in ages past, God has now revealed... To the end in verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And so I want to suggest to you that in these three chapters that culminate each one with the mention of the church in the grand and great purpose of God, what God has been up to in his mind, in his plan, from eternity past, we are taken to the heights in the book of Ephesians. We are let in on mysteries that have now been revealed that were previously hidden. We see the purpose of God, the intention of God, and each of these chapters will climax with mention of the church. I want to say that because... When we think what it is that the Lord is up to in this world, in this age, in, in, in time in which we are living, and what things are moving towards, we begin to get close to the heart of God and the mind of God when we see that his intention was to have a body of which the Lord Jesus would be the head, to have a building, not a physical building of brick and stone, but of living stones, as Peter said, that would be inhabited through his spirit. And ultimately, and Michael and I were talking about this yesterday, not to get too far out in the weeds, but I will mention this because if you don't understand it fully, see Michael, he can clearly expound it to you, that one of the important aspects of, I believe, rightly dividing the word of truth and seeing things dispensationally as opposed to another very prominent school of thought, Reformed theology, which is making a tremendous resurgence among Christians, 
is that uh, the purpose of reform, reform theology in relation to what God is up to is narrow. It is narrow in the sense that reform theology will declare that everything has to do with the soteriological purpose of God or the redemptive purpose of God. And while at first that sounds good, it's narrow in this sense. That dispensationally, the, the purpose of God, all things are moving towards what is called the doxological purpose of God. The word doxa uh, having to do with the glory of God. In all things, God ultimately will be glorified, redemption being part of that, but not the whole. Now, I don't want to, you know, get too technical in that, except to say that that is a big and important point. And in the purpose of all things moving ultimately, as you will find in the book of Revelation, they ultimately do, of causing God's glory to be praised, the church, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus forever. I say that because you've already been over many of the principles and practices and scriptures and things like that, and it's, it's apparent to me that uh, when it comes to things relating to the church and the New Testament church and how we gather and what we do when we meet and how we're structured and all the rest, there's nothing that any human being can really ultimately say to convince you if you're not going to be convinced by what God's Word says. The final court of appeal is the Scripture and what the Word of God says. But in having said that, I wish that I could funnel into my own thinking and into each one of our thinkings the grandeur, the bigness, the importance, the value of what it is we are involved in when we seek to do things God's way. We don't seek to do them in God's way because we have a very narrow mindset. We don't seek to do them God's way because we sit in judgment upon what everybody else does. We're right, they're all wrong. Just as in individual salvation, we seek to honor the Lord in our lives because he loved us and gave himself for us, and we have submitted ourselves unto the one we know as the Lord Jesus. So collectively we seek to do the same. But if we can grasp something of the glory connected with it, if we can see something of the greatness of God's program, of what it is we're involved in, if we can capture something of that vision of how he sees the church and how he views what we are involved in, I believe it'll help us in our motivation, help us to hold fast, help us to keep the pattern that he's revealed in his scripture because just like in Old Testament, if I can use that as a comparison, when it came to the building of the tabernacle. 
There never was a committee that was designed to say, see what you can come up with, or see what everybody likes, or take a vote, or, or do the demographics. See that you make all things according to the pattern. And it wasn't just that God was picky and liked the colors purple and blue and red and white, which are replicated throughout the tabernacle, uh, curtains and clothings and garments of the high priest and pomegranates and everything else. It was that everything in that tabernacle was intended in one way or another to display the glory of God and to communicate doctrinal truths concerning the person and the work of the Lord and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they marred the image, it would mar truth concerning the Lord himself. And so it is with the church, which is, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth, the support and the display of the truth. And so in the very way we come together, what we do, things that may seem small. I mean, one of the fascinating things about that tabernacle is that in 45 feet of space in the holy place, in the holy of holies, the service of God was done on earth in that little small place. You know, when it came to the tabernacle, it was nowhere near, I mean, if you've ever seen, I don't know why they did it years ago, but if you ever go to Nashville, Tennessee, for reasons other than the obvious, um, and you go to Centennial Park, which is in downtown Nashville, there is a full-size replica replica of the Parthenon. Now, <laughs> I have no clue why they did that. I'm sure you could find out. But it's the same size as the, the Parthenon in Greece. And there it sits atop its big hill with its columns and mythological figures and all the rest. It's enormous. The tabernacle wasn't that big but it housed the very glory of God. And in that little small space of just a few feet, the service of God was carried on, ministry to God, and the people came to be involved in that. And so when we think of the greatness of God's program from Old Testament to New Testament, there is a sense in which God has always desired a dwelling place. I mean, the very garden, in a sense, was a sanctuary. I, it took me a while to catch the reading of Genesis in my own thinking. It usually does. I'm a little slow on the uptake and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, there was a garden in, in Eden. In other words, the whole place wasn't a garden. There was a special spot. That was the place where God met with them. And then later, the very purpose of calling the children of Israel out of Egypt and to building a tabernacle in the first place is, the Lord said in Exodus 25 and verse 8, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. Later it was the temple. Today, it's the church. 
the very dwelling place of God. And in the future, one of the climaxes you reach in the book of Revelation, John says, is behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. You don't even get away from it. If you don't like it now and you didn't like it then, you're not going to get away from it because in eternity, God's final purposes reach their fulfillment when John says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And if that tabernacle was a place where they could look at the colors and the features that were there and learn of God, what will it be in that day when the reality of that tabernacle, because the tabernacle on earth in one sense or another, duplicated in picture form what the reality of heaven is like. What a place to learn of the Lord. The value of the church in the very mind and in the heart of the Lord. The beauty that's found in seeking to do those things which please the heart of God because they are connected with the glory of God and with the honor of God. May it elevate our thinking. May it transform our thinking. May it motivate us in our desire to serve him and to keep the pattern that he's given. As difficult as it may be sometimes, in the world in which we live, in the society in which we live. And even as difficult as it might be to discern that pattern accurately, the value of holding fast to those things. It wasn't to the biggest church in the, in the second and third chapters of Revelation that the Lord gave the promise but to the church at Philadelphia, he said, you have a little strength. You're weak as people look at you, perhaps. But I commend you for this, he said. You've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And one of the only churches that wasn't rebuked was that one that kept his word and did not deny his name. The Lord puts a premium on that. And so, not in a sense to try to be picky about seemingly insignificant things to some people, but the value of holding to that which is connected with the Lord's glory because everything that he has designed in the church and all the features he has incorporated into its life and its function and its gathering together touch on the very glory of God. And that's a wonderful privilege for us and it's a tremendous responsibility. And we don't always get it right. But God help us to try to seek to, by his grace, to get it right. To do the work that's necessary to get into the book, to discover the pattern and the beauty of the pattern.
and the the glory of it and the heart of it and the dynamic of it and the power that's to be found in it seeking to do things the Lord's way.